Welcome to the Book a Week podcast, jointly hosted by the SEPT University Library and the Center for Research on Architecture and Urbanism. Hi everyone, my name is Venu Gopal Madhipati. I'm an architectural historian and I teach and write in Delhi. I'm particularly interested in themes related to housing, ecological aesthetics, and law. Today, I'm going to speak with Dr. Asha Gertner from the Department of Geography, which is in the Rutgers School of Arts and Sciences in New Jersey. Now, Asha is an interdisciplinary geographer who studies mass displacement and how it is conceived, justified, and enacted. His research uses the contemporary politics of urban renewal in India to challenge conventional theories of economic transition, city planning, and political rule. His new book project, tentatively titled Bad Air, Life Exposed in the Climate of Crisis, uses the challenges of extreme air pollution exposure in Delhi to expose the ethics of the Anthropocene to the challenge of post-colonial justice. Now, for our part, we are here today to discuss an older text by Asher, which is titled Rule by Aesthetics, World-Class City Making in Delhi, which was published in 2015. Now, that text is a substantial exploration of land in its property form in millennial Delhi. Uh, and this is from a time immediately prior to the Commonwealth Games in 2012. So Asher particularly emphasized the question of the resettlement of the property less or those who don't have property, and the ways in which the imagination of the city is, paradoxically, similar to that of those who are property-owning citizens, right? And this is a fascinating paradox that you actually see in Rule by Aesthetics. And that book is now roughly six years old, and we're curious about the afterlife of that book and the ideas Asher pursued in it. So let's begin with a few questions. Asher, could you tell us something about the idea of aesthetics that you pursued in that book? And what exactly was the world-class aesthetic and how did it have a transformative influence on social relationships in Delhi? Sure. Uh, let me just begin by thanking you, Venu, for inviting me to this conversation, for taking the time to read the book and welcoming me to reflect on, as all books are, a labor of love, the one that is now, as you say, uh, more than five years old. It's really rare that we're invited as scholars to look back on past projects. Um, more often we see occasional reviews trickle in, sometimes we're not even aware of them. We see engagements or critiques, but having the chance to reflect on the arguments and the apparatus of a book is, is really exciting. So thank you again for the generous invitation and a conversation that I'm looking forward to. So on the question of aesthetics, I use aesthetics and aesthetic politics, I guess, in a few ways in the book. Most broadly, it's probably closest, you know, just to generalize to an idea of the urban imaginary or a shared vision about what the city is and what it might become. In this sense, the aesthetic is a kind of guiding order that instructs its participants on what to see, what they're supposed to pay attention to, and what they're supposed to examine. And that aesthetic then instructs them how to judge or evaluate whatever it is that they see. More than just this kind of general vision though, the aesthetic as I use it refers to a particular sensory and visual mapping, a relationship between an imagined future, something that's anticipated yet to come and the everyday lived built environment that one inhabits in the here and now, the local neighborhood level, 
the home and one's surrounding environment. In this sense, the aesthetic is not just then like an imposed order. It's something that necessarily takes root through individual subjectivities, how I, how you, and how those around us see, evaluate, feel. It is a way that a broader order is felt and adapted. And as such, urban aesthetics, in this sense, are always contested, right? They're subject to reevaluation, to rejudgment. And that's why I focus on the aesthetic politics, not just the aesthetics of, but the aesthetic politics of the remaking of Delhi in this millennial moment leading up to the Commonwealth Games, as you said. Because despite a seeming consensus that a so-called clean and green Delhi, which was the mantra of the time, that such a clean and green Delhi was a city without slums and that shopping malls were somehow good and inherently beautiful, aesthetics are always worked out on the ground through institutions, through subjectivities, through local political mechanisms. So in Delhi, in this millennial moment, when the time when I was doing my ethnography, I was struck really by how even in the absence of kind of what we might think of as scientific and planimetric techniques, those things like maps and surveys and censuses that are typically considered necessary to produce the modern city, urban space was nonetheless being systematically remade. Um, so my question was kind of how is it being guided and directed without those planimetric technologies or not without them, but in, their, in, in a kind of relative scarcity of those systems of rule by records that we might think of as necessary. So what this did is it led me to attend to the power of other aesthetic mechanisms of governance. And that's what I came to call rule by aesthetics or aesthetic governmentality. We can think of this really just generally in terms of like the way that something like blight in North American cities is visually evaluated, right? We know that a, a house is needs to be condemned, not because of a set of um, sort of clear criteria, but in terms of the evaluation of a surveyor, a code enforcement officer who sees it from the outside and recognizes that it's aesthetically decrepit or uh, an, an eyesore. The way that like urban beautification drives like are happening now in the lead up to Olympic games um, uh, 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 really guide the way that cities are imagined and governed. So from all of this, it's kind of clear to me that cities and infrastructures all over the world are increasingly evaluated and ruled on these aesthetic terms. And for me, Delhi was a city where this was made especially evident. It was clear in all kinds of ways. It was on what, if you talk to a planner, if you talk to one of the resident welfare associations, uh, these property owners that were aspiring to be living in a so-called world-class city, or if you spoke with the urban poor, this is how they were talking about and making sense of the city as it was changing around them. And what I tried to do with the concept was to root the aesthetic in specific conventions specific operations, specific political changes and discourses in Delhi itself. So the story of nuisance really became significant for me. And I discovered this by following, you know, the kind of empirical object of, of the book is the remaking of the city through the, the sort of institutionalization of, as you said, the property form of land in the city, but really the site of the kind of event through which I, I looked at this was slum removal. Um, and so what I started off doing is looking at the full chain of procedures by which many slums were being removed. And I noticed that a lot of the demolitions were prompted by these local RWAs that were filing petitions, PILs, in the high courts, 
claiming that a neighboring slum was a so-called nuisance, a kind of aesthetic eyesore. It looks bad, it smells bad, it's obstructing our, our view. Um, and I then followed how the shifting discourse of Delhi as an emerging world-class city led judges to adopt, the, or adopt these same aesthetic evaluations to treat slums as of the legal category of an actual nuisance, deeming them obstacles to the city's development. It wasn't because they violated the master plan. It wasn't because of they lacked property ownership or legal title, but rather because they were nuisances themselves. And so I then show how these kind of local codes of appearance, of comportment and propriety, the kinds of things that one is expected to do on land where one's living in the city were leveraged through the law to become a major demolition machine, clearing public land of the public citizens that had been inhabiting it to make way for the private city. So this is what led me to, uh, to Shiv Camp, this particular busty or settlement, to see how residents were responding to this. Wow. So that's 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 quite it's quite a lot actually that you were actually covering. And and since you now mentioned um, Shiv Camp, um, <laughs> just wanted to know how long you spent in Shiv Camp, and you know, could you mm -hmm. say something about it? And would you have any idea of how its residents are doing in the present and have things changed since the time you actually wrote your book and you worked with this community that was living there? Ah, uh, yes, definitely. So, um, so shift camp, I'd spent many months, you know, my dissertation, this, the book came out of my dissertation project. So I'd spent many months, uh, before beginning my formal field work with organizers in a network of slum based organizations in Delhi called Saja Munch, specifically with the team at the hazard center, in Delhi, led by Dunu Roy and Lalit Patra and members of the Delhi Shramak Sangatan. I spent a lot of time over a few months visiting slum demolition sites, seeing how this like really inspiring team of activists were trying to stop demolitions as they were unfolding. I'd settled on one particular busty called Ravidas Camp, where I was planning on being based. And the idea was that I was gonna live in a DDA, a Delhi Development Authority flat, that had an active RWA in it that was trying to have Ravidas camp and othering nearby slums removed um, to sort of see the way that, you know, to kind of focus on local property contestations and forms of slum organizing and counter mapping and all this stuff. Well, it turned out that in the last week of my preliminary work, Ravidas camp was demolished. Um, I was shocked. I, at the time was, uh, the next day I was literally returning to Berkeley um, where I was a student at the time. And I had to kind of figure out, okay, where's my field work gonna happen? So when I returned some months later after receiving my research visa, um, I started by following the specific legal case that led to Ravidas Camp's demolition and learned that it was the local RWA that had petitioned the Delhi High Court for its removal, specifically charging that Ravidas Camp was a nuisance that was hindering those DDA flat owners enjoyment of their property. So I decided in, in without having a real field site in a busty to rent a flat nearby, knowing that there were other busties not too far away. And while I was living there and following these court orders and the RWA activism and all this stuff, an activist friend called me um, and said that uh, uh, there was a busty near my house that had just been demolished. I rushed over to what uh, is the place that I call Shiv Camp and started going every day really for the next 12 months. Um, and then off and on for another 12 months after that. Um, 
And what I became especially interested in through all this was how residents imagined their own futures, how in the context of this new world-class aesthetic in which Bustis like theirs seemingly had no part, they participated in that aesthetic vision, trying to imagine a place for themselves in it, even demanding a place for themselves in it on its very terms, but reappropriating and twisting it, I found in certain ways. And a big way that this happened was through uh, the demand for resettlement. And by attaching a set of kind of lifestyle improvements to what they thought resettlement might offer, saying basically like, okay, you think we don't belong here, but that's because you haven't given us property access. And if you're going to resettle us and kick us off our land, then you need to give us nice homes so that when that property is kind of proper, we too will become proper citizens of the city. And that's the kind of logic that I saw them mobilizing in certain ways by not rejecting a world-class aesthetic in which they were seen as outsiders, but appropriating it as a condition of a demand, a kind of demand for urban citizenship of sorts. So since then, well, what's happened? <laughs> a lot has changed, but also not so much. Um, first, uh, something that was really interesting to me and that I followed um, the few years after the book was published was that even though more than 100 houses had been demolished through a Delhi High Court order in Shiv Camp, um, the High Court order simply said that those houses had to be removed so that a 45-foot wide road could be blazed through the middle of the settlement. Um, that demolition took place. I think it was about 150 uh, jugis or huts had been cleared. Um, the MCD that did the demolition, the municipal corporation, took photos, gave it to the high court, and the high court says, cool, the, you know, you've, you've fulfilled the requirements of the order, case closed. Um, Shiv camp residents, though, were quite clever, and they made use of the kind of collective nature, the non-privatized nature of land occupation, occupation there. And what they did is that they allowed some of the residents whose homes had been demolished to rebuild their jugis in open spaces inside the still standing parts of the settlement. So for example, some areas where an old tree had once provided a kind of public shaded area or a public space, a kind of open space, there wasn't any built up form. Um, four jugis were allowed to be built up there, out settling families. A family of brothers that had lost um, two jugis on this newly built road ended up taking over the kind of courtyard space within which a cluster of four of the family's jugis had been located. The road very shortly after became a kind of space of storage where people would leave construction materials. They'd lay out charpais for resting. Boys would play cricket. They'd park motorcycles. They'd set up marketplaces. Um, so even though the intention of the petition in the high court to remove Shiv camp was aimed at reducing the size and the density and the population, that's not what happened at all. In the meantime, lots of residents did move out. Some who were displaced already owned small plots of land in nearby unauthorized colonies or in resettlement colonies even where they had purchased, purchased little plots. Some who were displaced already owned small plots of land like this. Many had already begun trying to get a foothold in the informal property market in Delhi in that way. Others have left since uh, left Shiv Camp since, um, often renting out their old jugis uh, to other family members or other neighbors. Um, but what's interesting to me about all of this is that this set of kind of fungible land relations where kind of the same land uses can exist here or there, it doesn't really matter, but they're sort of still clustered in the slum in some way, ended up preserving 
really uh, a kind of non-privatized space in the city that's continued um, against all odds, I would argue, to operate as a kind of working class space of possibility. So that's, that's interesting because I think in your book, I mean, where you're trying to actually capture this sense of a fungible, non-privatized uh, uh, sort of uh, basis for relationships between people uh, in Shiv camp, you're also simultaneously suggesting um, that the private property form still hours like some kind of a ghost on the horizon. You know, it actually still enters into the ways in which people relate with each other or even relate with their, you know, dreams of the future or imagination of the future. So I think in that context, I was wondering if you could say something about the house as a private property form, because there is this paradox in your book where you compare the ghar, which you oftentimes identify with these fungible, non-privatized social relationships, which are on public land, with the mm. idea of the plot, which is private property, right? And mm. and so if you could say something about that, I think that'd be very interesting for architects in particular, I think, because I think this is a question that we probably need to engage with with more intensity. Yeah, thanks for that, Venu. Um, so this this distinction between ghar and plot was something that emerged in conversation with especially youth, not only youth, but youth in um, in Shiv camp in the context of, I guess, what I would call this really speculative speculative urbanism or speculative landscape of urban change taking place all around them. As I say in the book, the place where Shiv camp uh, was and is located was seeing tremendous change in this kind of millennial period. The metro, a metro station um, had come up uh, relatively nearby. A uh, five-star hotel was being built. Um, a new district center had been developed. Um, many of the nearby property owners, like the, in the Kotis, were, were really embellishing their you know, two to three story poured concrete homes with these facades of, you know, faux columns and it's sort of demonstration of the kind of an attempt to perform a kind of architectural grandeur, I would say. And yet here these these guys were in these in this Juki colony um, living with, uh, you know, in, in a relatively unchanged state. And, and so this landscape was morphing all around them. They heard spectacular stories of property prices, you know, going up 50, 100 times. And they'd also heard stories and seen experiences of people being resettled from, uh, from busties into these resettlement camps where there, where there was this idea that suddenly they had gained access, a foothold in the property market, that this wasn't just a place to live, but it was an investment. Um, and so what I became really enamored with, or at least really focused on, was the ways that especially these young guys many of whom were experiencing economic stagnation and precarity in the context of a labor market that didn't have a lot of space for them, were recognizing this, um, this almost property fetishism that had come to dominate not just slum residents, but the city as a whole, right? This is this time when, you know, speculative boom was at its peak. Malls were coming up everywhere and that whole thing. And so this property fetishism was one in which there were lots of stories 
theories, again, not only among the urban poor, about land as automatically producing value, that the property form had a magical capacity to, um, to generate tremendous, tremendous wealth. And the only mechanism, the only vehicle that was presented for the, this, these residents was resettlement, this horribly violent process that they had just been resisting and contesting. And so this gar versus plot distinction emerged in the context of um, residents debating amongst themselves over whether they wanted resettlement or not. They had told stories of other nearby busties, some of which were much newer and therefore less politically established than Shiv Camp was, being given larger plots of land just 10 years earlier in the late 90s. And they heard stories of those plots then being able to be sold for you know, significant sums of money. I can't remember what it was, but maybe eight or 10 lakh, which then was, was quite lakh rupees, which then was quite uh, substantial. Um, and so they were sort of imagining um, they were imagining, okay, if we're going to get resettled, what do we get out of it? And they were seeing this as a kind of mechanisms to get into the property market. And yet it was a loss at the same time. A lot of them would say, what will we have there? We've gone to these resettlement colonies. They're quite distant. They're not developed at all. The land is miserable. The homes there are quite measly. Um, and this led to this kind of contrast between Gar as a home, something that we gradually built up, that they invest, as you say, kind of architectural skill in building up and devising a lot of care and, and love in building a home with you know, aesthetic embellishments and design features and that accommodates the family in the appropriate way to basically starting afresh, getting a, a pile of bricks uh, and having to start over. And so they were losing that gar, and yet they were enamored by um, this fetish that a plot of 18 gudge land, 18 gudge, you know, not very much space would suddenly be worth two lakh and someday it would become worth five lakh without doing anything on it, just sitting there. It's uh, like you um, use the word magic, right? It's almost magical how value kind of accrues to this, uh, you know, to the idea of property. Exactly, and that and that magic is was, was widespread in Delhi. And I try to say that it wasn't as if these youth who were telling fantastical stories about actual magical appearances of like actual money from the land. I try to say this wasn't a form of ideological concealment. They weren't duped. They weren't tricked into believing that resettlement was something that it that it actually wasn't. They understood that life would be difficult there. That gar wouldn't be found there at least for some time. That in fact, this logic was, was not um, a fantasy in their minds, but it was the fantasy of the city, the social relations of the time. You mention in your text, this word propriety, and you do it very carefully. Um, when you say that Shiv camp residents sought to transform their lives by linking self-propriety and the implicit value of property. What exactly does this mean? Yeah, thanks, Venu. Um, I'm so happy to have someone ask me uh, these questions about uh, what is the last chapter of the book, chapter six. It's one of my favorite ones, and I and I think people, you know, as is often the case, people end up reading the first few chapters and thinking they get a feel for things. But I think the most ethnographic chapters, engaging with the property form and the aesthetics of the home, et cetera, are in the last two chapters of the book. So it's fun to, to think, think on this a little bit. Um, 
So um, by propriety here, um, I'm, what I'm trying to do is play on the word uh, uh, property. Think about the, the, the as I say in, in this chapter six, the, the etymologically correct root of property as proper, that which is proper, the proper form. And thinking about the forms of the conditions, the dispositions, the forms of public appearance that are proper to a city of property, the way that the city should look, the way that people should behave, the sorts of aesthetic codes they should adhere to and subscribe to when they're in a city of property. Just trying to establish a clearer divide between the public and the private by saying, for example, that residents of Jukis, those that are occupying public land in Busties, people do things like wash and bathe in the open, but in private homes, that doesn't happen or shouldn't happen. So a set of dispositions, a set of aesthetic criteria, even standards, standards that had always been there, of course, for the, the middle class, begin to be mapped over the public spaces of the city, forms of propriety, expectations of the way that individuals hold themselves, conduct themselves, appear, um, and expect others to appear. This was part of the world-class aesthetic, as experienced especially by slum residents who saw that this was a city that no longer wanted them, in which their own conditions of belonging were very much called into question. Part of what I was trying to look at in this last chapter of the book was the way that Going back to your last question about plot and gar, so what do you lose when you when you when you lose gar but you gain plot? What comes along with that? And what they're sort of saying, what they were starting to 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 say is that there are certain ways of being, certain forms of propriety that are not either possible or are not implicit in these public um, land economies. But when we get our plot out there, not only will that become value producing, um, as I said, but also it will transform the subjects of that property. It will make them proper to the conditions of property ownership. And this was a vehicle for both, um, both um, aspiring to a better future, right? Saying things like, um, you know, our daughters will marry good husbands, um, our husbands will stop drinking and gambling. But more importantly, and what I really dwell on in this chapter is that it became a, a condition, a, a way in which slum residents who were felt unable to reject the world-class aesthetic, who were un, felt, didn't they have, didn't have the conditions, the conditions didn't exist politically for them to say anything about why the city should not be slum free. That was a kind of condition of speech was to accept that, that future because that's what the whole aesthetic framework of the city had become. To then say, okay, in that future, how do we fit in? And they made a set of demands on that basis. Give us property so that we can become uh, of you know, proper, pro proper, proper citizens. And so that proper, property fetishism that I was talking about before became reversed in a certain way. It wasn't... Um, it wasn't just that land produces particular kinds of social relations in its property form, but that land has the capacity to transform selves and that those transformed selves um, um, uh, are, are precisely what uh, the city both wanted of slum residents and that they wanted. They were, they were articulating their demands on those terms. That's, that's the sort of way that I 
think I was trying to frame it. If, if that makes sense, Bainu. It's 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 a very it's a very sort of uh, you know important part of the book, but it's also this idea of the affective nature of of uh, property. I mean, the way it sort of assumes or creates or you know a variety of experiences, which are not just reducible only to the property form, but which nevertheless are triggered partly by it. And I think that was that's something which is an important um, thing to re reflect on. And Thanks, um, I think, but then which actually brings us to the next question, which is which is a sort of a bit of a, you know, it's, it's, it's an ambiguous question because I think it's, it's still not fully, it's, it's a bit uh, inchoate. It's not fully formed, but I think as is the case with, you know, uh, a good text, I think, which provokes you to actually think. Uh, sometimes the questions need not necessarily be completely formed because we actually literally thinking them as we are asking them. And I think, um, I think significantly in your writing, what you do see is in a very simple way, but also in a very complex way, the future, um, in a sense, began without actually having transpired, uh, you know, began to impinge upon the present in millennial Delhi, right? I mean, that's something that you're trying to capture, right? This, this, this future that is yet to come is already here in the way in which it is actually beginning to impact human relationships. And, you know, and speculation is beginning to have active implications on social relationships in the present in the city. And, and I think that's that's the most um, that's the most fascinating, but at the, at the same time the most worrying aspect of mm -hmm. how uh, you know we get alienated from the present, right? And and I'm particularly curious about this phenomenon of the uh, of the sort of evaluation of the present in terms of a future time or a future matrix in Millennial Delhi, and particularly so because in in my own interest uh, and specifically in my own writing, what I was actually looking at was quite the opposite, which is there's this countervailing force of presentism against the future, which is an ethical commitment, which comes with its own serious problems. I should uh, mention that, and especially in the context of Gandhism and Gandhian architecture, which I've explored in, in my own work. And so not to sort of thrust that onto your work and just to simply ask you though, how would you describe how the present becomes narrativized as a kind of an imagined precedent to a forthcoming future of property dealings in millennial Delhi? And secondarily, if there is any way of resisting the onslaught of this kind of, um, you know, um, retrospective narrativization of the present and kind of damage it does in society. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a, a great question, Venu. And um, I'm really looking forward to uh, reading the full version of your book. I know it's out, but I have, but it's, it's really on, on my list. I loved hearing the excerpts from it when you presented here at Rutgers um, a few a few years ago because it it you know that was after this book had been written but it forced me to think a little bit about as you say the way that architecture as aesthetic form produces a kind of durability which I'm not sure if this is how you would frame it but that's that that's that's the way in which I, I think what you call the force of presentism right the way in which um, it's future oriented but it establishes a kind of commitment to the now and that it, that can be even resistive to um, a future a future matrix. I think that's maybe how you put it. But in, in the context of, of this moment in Delhi, this incredibly speculative moment, the near future, um, this horizon of possibility was being projected everywhere. And that's how I begin the book is um, the way that in kind of everyday conversation, as I was talking with planners, with um, RWA, uh, so uh, these resident welfare associations, with the urban poor, 
um, with activists was this foreboding sense of what was to come um, in part through this mega event, the Commonwealth Games, uh, in part through um, this, this, the more general speculative um, projection of a propertyed future, in part through these uh, economic reports by consulting groups like McKinsey and the World Bank that were saying various things about what the Indian economy was going to become and the role of the city in that becoming. Uh, and a big part of it has to do with, um, at the time, the launch of the then 2021 Delhi Master Plan, uh, which is interesting now because uh, the, the, new, the newest Delhi Master Plan has just come. So this is another moment where the future is literally recorded. Now, master plans, of course, are not meant to sort of directly direct or conduct the city towards this future, but it is laying out a kind of map, as it were. And what I found so surprising um, uh, in this in this context in in Delhi, um, when Delhi and India was imagining itself on the world stage in this particular way, the Commonwealth Games is one sort of symbol of that, um, and a kind of eventualization of uh, through this mega event of what India on the world stage might be, was that people were actually describing the the master plan as a map that told us what our neighborhood would look like, not just like land use categorization, but sort of a vision almost, a picture, a picture of the future. This is how a lot of Shiv camp residents, not only, but especially imagined this. Um, but it wasn't only them. I'd spent some time with planners in the DDA uh, interviewing them about how they prepared the base map, the ground survey of existing conditions so that they could project and define what the 2021 future was going to look like. And they, they talked about it remarkably on similar terms, that they could literally drive around the city and see what belonged and what wasn't going to be there in 2021. Um, and so this, this sort of plan, this is, I think, you know, if, if we want to be... Um, positive about planning, this is one of its powers. If we want to be concerned about the power of a future vision, then this is a, a very scary form of social engineering that allows um, this, this, this power of the image, as it were, uh, to establish a grid of intelligibility by which the here and now are evaluated. But how to resist the onslaught of this narrative of the present is, uh, is a hard one. I mean, I think I think history helps, right? History, the ways in which communities can mobilize historical technologies to make claims on um, what the present actually is and the work that it took to get there. In the context of architecture, maybe that means you know I'm I I think you know some of these these really bland, banal state. Um, uh, uh, backed forms like for example dda housing societies there's a lot there as far as far as communal communal sociality that uh, at least in my limited experience you don't find in the new gated complexes that are popular in the outskirts of the city anymore so what 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 is that as you know uh nehruvian area era post-socialist late social you know socialist vision of the city what are the forms of sociality that still exist very much in the present that were the vision of the future then, 
that we sometimes forget to recognize as, as profoundly significant in producing a kind of public city that um, I think a lot of people nostalgically, maybe not the DDA flat as such, but, but um, certain forms of, of, of life or certain forms of urban sociality that um, I think are, are perhaps under threat today and that the future is threatening. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's, that's what I think the book evocatively captures, but it also points towards how the present itself provides a certain kind of a finite world, which uh, you know, um, presents its opportunities of uh, engagement with the communities in the present. Hmm. And I think it's, but it's this idea of a future that sort of comes in and impinges from outside and actually simply uh, has a very strange effect on relationships in the present. And I think this kind of a, um, this kind of a tug of war between the present and the future. I think that's something worth exploring. And I, I really like reading your book, Asher. And I think uh, that's about as much time as we'll have. But thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. And I think it was really extensive and you spoke quite um, systematically about you know, uh, what is actually even happening in the city of Delhi. And I really look forward to the work in the future that you're doing, which I gather is also uh, related to Delhi, but also now I think I've noticed that you're working in the United States. So I think uh, I wish you all the best and we look forward to seeing new work from you, Asha. Thanks so much, Vane. It was really my pleasure. Hope you enjoyed this episode. Do not miss to like, share and subscribe to our podcast. Available on all your favorite podcast apps.